This is the 13th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society for Hematology. This podcast covers the guideline on the management of sickle cell disease in pregnancy. Because of COVID-19 and the period that we are in, ordinarily we would have done this podcast face to face, but it has to be done on Zoom. So I do apologize if there is any loss in the sound quality of the podcast. My name is Professor Eugene Oten Intem. I'm Professor of Obstetrics at Guy's and St. Thomas's and King's College and a consultant obstetrician at Guy's and St. Thomas's. I also hold an honorary post at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in Epidemiology and Population Health. I have had over 20 years experience in looking after mothers with sickle cell disease in pregnancy. And our recent series that we've published uh, actually focused on over 170 pregnancies. And clearly the importance of this guideline which has been updated from a previous guideline from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecology. We feel that um, that needs to be updated and hence the purpose of this guideline produced by the British Society of Emetology. The focus therefore is on the management of sickle cell disease in pregnancy um, importance of this title, um, actually because the condition is a very serious condition um, affecting significant amount of patients, particularly in developing countries, but also due to migration, very important in, now in the United Kingdom. The purpose of the guideline is to describe the management of sickle cell disease in pregnancy with a focus in the UK. I will focus and ensure the guideline covers preconception screening, antenatal, intrapartum, and postnatal management of patients with sickle cell disease. It will not cover the management of women with sickle cell trait or who are sickle cell carriers. Uh, clearly, in the condition, it covers, therefore, those who are homozygous, hemoglobin SS example, and all those who have compound heterozygous, for example, hemoglobin SC disease. Sickle cell disease is now the most common inherited condition in the UK, almost 100 to 200 pregnancies but it is associated with significant mortality and morbidity in pregnancy and hence the importance of this guideline. We know that over 15,000 individuals have sickle cell disease outside pregnancy. Inside pregnancy, this is close to about 200. And almost about 300 infants are born with the condition each year. It's important because of the severity of the condition in pregnancy with this associated morbidity of hypertension, thromboembolism, urinary tract infections, or generally sepsis, it's important therefore to produce this guideline to address 
and to improve the quality of care of these patients. Preconception, most mothers or most uh, patients with sickle cell disease often will be seen yearly by their hematologist. And hence, preconception is important to ensure that most of their organs are functioning very well. So it's important if mothers are planning for pregnancy to ensure that their liver function test is normal. They would have had a, a scan of the heart called echocardiography and ensuring that that's also normal. If they are on any medications that may impact on their pregnancy, those medications may need to be stopped. And this examples of these are ACE inhibitors and also hydroxycarbamide, because these may be teratogenic for the baby during pregnancy. Our recommendation therefore is to encourage that all these tests specific to the liver, the kidney, and the heart are done to ensure that they are at optimum functioning. It's important to also ensure that the partner is tested or the father of the baby is tested so that if the mother is at risk of having a baby with sickle cell disease, they are often offered in the UK pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And even without that um, offer, it's important to counsel them that they are at risk of having a baby with sickle cell disease. So a comprehensive review preconception may improve outcome during the pregnancy. The only scenario where one may advise mothers not to become pregnant is if they have pulmonary hypertension and that the echocardiography will allude uh, to that. But otherwise, they would have had their liver checked, their kidneys, their heart, and also if any previous history of stroke, it becomes very important to ensure that that is very much stabilized and preventative measures are put in place before coming into pregnancy. And some of the preventative measures may be serial prophylactic exchange blood transfusion, which I'll come back onto that. Clearly, if they are not planning pregnancy, any opportunity should be used to talk about pregnancy and conception. In the scenario that they may need to be on particular contraceptives or some pregnancies are not planned, so at least they are aware of that. We should advise them with regards to vitamin D use and vitamin D deficiency, and that test should be done to allude to that if they are not considering taking it. By and large, they should be on prophylactic uh, penicillin in that should they come into pregnancy, their risk of infection is very high, so important for them to be on prophylactic penicillin or prophylactic antibiotics. By and large, Therefore, when they do become pregnant, if none of these tests have been done, if none of these advice have been given, then clearly it should be given. So in the important period where they have become pregnant, it's important to allude 
to ensuring that all these organs are functioning very well. Clearly, early identification of the pregnancy, particularly using scan to identify the size of the baby or the level of pregnancy is very, very important. I've underlined the importance of establishing how well the major organs are functioning. It's also important to provide preventative measures, such as the use of low-dose aspirin. And we have recommended in this guideline 75 to 150 milligrams of low-dose aspirin for the prevention of um, preeclampsia. We will allude to the importance of detailed combined tests at 11 to 14 weeks that will help identify other genetic or chromosomal abnormalities, which is routinely done. And once at the 11 to 14 weeks as well, we check, apart from the booking blood test, a liver function test, renal function test. And if they haven't had an echo in the last year, echocardiography to allude to the state of the heart to ensure that that supports the pregnancy right up until delivery. By and large, if they are on iron chelation, we advise them to stop. And again, we've alluded to that in this guideline. We often do not prescribe them iron, partly because they tend to have high levels of iron. But if there is a consideration of that, then do a ferritin test first before commencing iron. So they should be on uh, penicillin prophylaxis. They should have folic acid five milligrams once daily. They should have been fully vaccinated. We would have stopped any uh, medications that may compromise the pregnancy, such as ACE inhibitors and hydroxycarbonate. And in continuing with the pregnancy, they will have a detailed scan at 20 weeks, and we will ensure that every four weeks, they will have serial scans to establish that the baby is growing well. As we know, mothers with sickle cell disease are prone to having small babies particularly they are two to three times likely to have uh, babies who are not growing well. And identifying these at a very early stage allow us to be able to act appropriately to improve outcomes for these mothers and hence the importance of the serial uh, growth scans. So this is actually quite pertinent. So in terms of the appointments that we've recommended during pregnancy, Clearly, they will be seen at the 11 to 14 weeks. They are then reviewed by the midwives at 16 weeks to ensure that the urine, for instance, doesn't have any infection. And then 20 weeks, they would have had their detailed scan. And from there onwards, they will have four weekly scans until the time of delivery. Clearly, because of their risk of pregnancy-induced hypertension, we recommend the need for low-dose aspirin. And if aspirin is started at a good enough time in pregnancy, i.e. before 16 weeks, we know that it reduces the risk of preeclampsia um, by about 50 to 80%. So this is important for our patients who have sickle cell disease because their risk of preeclampsia is two times higher. It's clearly very important, therefore, for us to use this very low-dose aspirin to prevent 
preeclampsia because the risk of our mothers with sickle cell disease of having preeclampsia is two times higher. So this is very, very important for us to ensure that we prevent this. They would have gone on to have their serial growth scans uh, and it's very, very important to ensure that the baby is growing well. For some mothers who may already be on serial prophylactic exchange blood transfusion, we will continue with this throughout the pregnancy. For mothers who are seriously at risk, such as mothers who have recurrent sickle cell crisis, for mothers who have had previous poor obstetric history, for mothers with twins, we often recommend serial prophylactic blood transfusion. But otherwise, we do not routinely recommend serial prophylactic blood transfusion in this guideline. And we feel that this should be in the context of a clinical trial or studies or research to actually find a bit more about this, which we actually have got a grant and be able to do that. And hopefully in our future guideline, we may be able to add that onto it. For those who are at risk of having a baby with sickle cell disease, if their risk is one in four, then we offer them, for instance, a diagnostic test during the pregnancy, which is in the form of amniocentesis or chorionic filler sampling. But that is not free of risk. But clearly during pregnancy, some mothers may want to know, and this is the definitive test to allow them to, to know the risk. They may come into pregnancy or during the pregnancy have acute pain episodes, i.e. sickle cell crisis. And in that, we advise that for pain management, apart from avoiding um, perhaps severe use of opiates, if that needs to be used, then that needs to be used within hospital setting. Otherwise, we advise the use of paracetamol, dihydrocodone, before 30 weeks of pregnancy, they can use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen, and that is safe to use during pregnancy up to that gestation. For those with severe pain, we advise them to come into hospital because they will need a stronger pain relief in the form of opiates. And usually that may be in the form of injection or that may be in the form of patient-controlled analgesia in the form of infusion. But this needs to be monitored very closely. So those patients, we often recommend for them to be admitted to a high dependency unit to ensure that we are titrating the dose accordingly and ensuring that generally the monitoring of the mother is within normal ranges. We also ensure that if the mother is dehydrated, after the mother is very appropriately hydrated, we should ensure that they have appropriate fluid balance so that they are not uh, overloaded. We also ensure that their general well-being and also the fetal well-being is monitored in the form of um, a scan or occasionally uh, cardiotography. And we ensure that they are monitored very closely until their full recovery 
and they are discharged home timely. By and large, during pregnancy, we ensure that appropriate thromboprophylaxis is given. And for mothers who have no other risk factors apart from sickle cell disease, they are offered low molecular weight heparin, a prophylactic dose from 28 weeks onwards. For mothers who have added risk factors, such as increasing age over 35, they may have had more than two pregnancies. Then we offer them low dose prophylactic, uh, low molecular weight heparin from booking, i.e. from 12 weeks onwards, in order to prevent thromboembolism. The risk of it is about two to four times higher in our mothers with sickle cell disease compared to those without sickle cell disease. And um, we also look out for particularly chest complications, their risk of pneumonia, and the importance of the use of prophylactic penicillin to prevent that. But if they have chest symptoms, we advise them to come in. We do a timely chest x-ray to identify acute chest syndrome. This is very serious in pregnancy, and we treat it very aggressively to ensure that the mothers do well otherwise. So I've covered some of the complications within the guideline, both before the pregnancy and also during pregnancy. We also have to address the timing of delivery. If the mothers have done well throughout the pregnancy, the size of the baby, the growth of the baby are progressing very well, then by and large, we offer delivery between 38 to 40 weeks. Clearly, if there is complications, then we deliver them earlier based on the indication of that complication. But otherwise, we advise delivery between 38 to 40 weeks, partly because some of the complications that may happen when the baby is fully mature, we cannot predict. And hence, once the baby is mature, i.e. from 38 weeks onwards, we feel that it's better to deliver the baby than to wait for unpredictable complication. By and large, if there aren't any complications, then we aim for delivery between 38 and 40 weeks. If the baby is in the right presentation, of normal size, then we recommend a vaginal delivery in the form of induction. Clearly, if there are any other indication that may compromise the baby if we deliver vaginally, then we recommend cesarean section. Usually during labor, the mother is kept well hydrated a very experienced midwife to look after her. We ensure that her oxygen saturation is normal. We ensure that the fluid balance is normal. And we aim for a vaginal delivery, usually based on the mother's choice, they may choose to have epidural during the labor, but by and large, they do very, very well with vaginal delivery. And in our series of data, almost 54% have a vaginal uh, delivery and a, a very good outcome. So again, in our series, we find that whilst in the literature, the mortality is about one to 2% in terms of um, stillbirth, and indeed also one to 2% in terms of maternal mortality. In our series, we find that these figures are less than 1%. So 
I think this is based on the effectiveness of the guideline that we've provided before. And I hope that this updated guideline will also go a long way to improve the quality even further in those outcomes. In conclusion, the majority of women with sickle cell disease in the UK reach reproductive age. Clearly, pre-pregnancy, there have to be discussion by their hematologists, by their GP on pregnancy. The timing of their pregnancy is important. So if there are on any medications that may compromise pregnancy, it needs to be stopped. Their organs, major organs, needs to be fully checked, liver function, renal function, and also echocardiography for their heart. If they are at risk of having a baby with sickle cell disease, then that clearly they could be offered pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and avoid having a baby with sickle cell disease. Often during pregnancy, we they should have a low threshold to be admitted. They should be on preventative medications such as low-dose aspirin, such as penicillin, uh, to improve their outcomes. Estrogen blood transfusion for selective few who are seriously at risk, but for routine use, it has to be in the context of clinical trials. And if we feel that if these guidelines is followed, we feel that there will be a good optimal outcome for mother and baby. I thank the listeners for listening. I apologize for the sound quality because of Zoom. I invite the listeners to visit the BSH website to listen to more exciting podcasts from the British Society of Hematology about various important guidelines. Thank you.